Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. I know uh, my wife is asking me, like, what are we actually like going through right now? Are we going through a series or, or what's actually happening? Um, and I realized I didn't really communicate that very well to anybody. Um, and so uh, essentially when we launched on the 21st, uh, uh, we're going through a series on who is Advent. Um, and, and so we, we did two, two sermons, particularly on why the name Advent informs who we are, uh, both the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Um, this week, I want to talk about our thoughts behind discipleship a little bit um, and what it costs to be a part of, of the church in general, but then also what it costs to be a part of, of a, uh, of a church plant. Um, and then following this week, we're going to get more into why our mission statement is what it is and why our values are the way that they are. So um, that's where we're headed. That's what we're tracking. Uh, and so sorry I hadn't really uh, given you all much direction before that. Um, so uh, anyways, hopefully now you all understand better where we are. Um, but this, this, uh, this Sunday, we're going to focus on Luke chapter 14 um, and what Jesus has to say to his disciples uh, here. So would you all please stand for the reading of the gospel um, here from Luke 25, Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the gospel of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you that you, um, that you speak to us, that you give us your word. Thank you that you've given to us Christ. And even though the words here are challenging, I pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and Lord, that you would give us wills um, to do all that you ask, knowing that in you and in Christ is salvation. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, my question for us as a congregation, but particularly also as sort of West Houstonites, um, those sort of on this side uh, of downtown, is do you want it all? Um, in, a high in a high achieving society, sorry, I got that little wires crossed, we de facto believe that we should have it all or that we can get it all. Right? I, I can make excellent grades. 
I can get the right amount of exercise. I can get my kids into all the extracurricular activities that they desire and that they need, and I'll have fulfilling dating and marriage life. And uh, on top of that, I'll also look beautiful, and I will have an amazing prayer life as well. Right? I can do it. Um, well, personally, I've had a very rough relationship with this idea that I can do it all. Um, particularly when I was in seminary, I happened to be a full-time student. I also was the director of our campus, which meant that I was the fundraiser, I was the recruiter, I was the dean of students, I was the, uh, the liaison between the faculty and the students, I had to also be the travel agent between the faculty and when they were coming to visit us in Austin. I also was the head lacrosse coach at a high school that developed our own youth program um, to develop kids into great lacrosse players, all the while trying to be a good father and a, a brand new father, uh, hopefully a good one, and, uh, and <laughs> thanks babe, <laughs> and, uh, and a husband. Um, I wanted it all, and I believed that it was possible to have it all. I, and it's ridiculous to me that I now look back on that time and that I was so confused why it was one of the most spiritually dry times in my life right, as to why my faith and my discipleship was struggling so much. I see I wanted to be the best student. I wanted to do an amazing job for the seminary. I wanted young men to grow up and learn how to be better men because of playing lacrosse. And I wanted to be a great dad and husband. And I didn't want anyone to know I was struggling in the midst of it. I never counted the cost. I didn't realize ultimately where that belief was leading me. It was leading me down a path of death. It was leading me to physical and spiritual death. And so actually that summer, um, as we were on vacation in Colorado, I turned to Juliana at dusk. I'd been having massive stomach issues for about, uh, about two months up to that point. And I said, um, I kind of hope that these are ulcers, so then I'll have a reason to stop. Um, I've heard from a few of y'all or from others uh, where I was ministering before that um, you kind of wanted COVID so that you'd have a reason to stop. Right? How many of you have had that exact same thinking or that same thought process of everything is too crazy, I'm trying to pursue it all right now, and I'm dying. I need a reason to stop. So do you want it all? Do you believe that you can have it all? Right? To graduate with honors or to invest in the right, right relationships, to give your kids every single opportunity that you either did or didn't have. Right, to be a good neighbor, a great friend, an amazing spouse, to be the most devoted disciple of Jesus, are all of these things, things that you're trying to pursue and not counting the cost. Maybe that last part can be a little too extreme because I think most often as American Christians, we often think, well, I want all that first stuff and I want Jesus's salvation, but we kind of look at it a little bit more like the, the Hershey's chocolate that we put on top of our ultimate dreams. I, um, I don't want to give anything up for that salvation. And I think that's part of why we struggle with the passage um, that I read for us this evening. Um, we, we struggle because we create a Jesus in our own image. Um, we've created Jesus as a counselor and as a helper, and we find biblical verses to back that up and kind of skip over the ones that don't. Um, and so as I was talking about this passage with the staff this week, um, 
one of our, our staff members sort of exaggeratedly said, uh, you know, that, that it's tough when we encounter bad guy Jesus, right? Um, because oftentimes we look at Jesus as our fairy god brother, right? Um, not as bad guy Jesus, not the one, not that he actually wants bad things of us, but that um, he isn't somehow the genie that grants all of our wishes, uh, and, and, and that somehow because he demands and challenges us, that, that makes him feel like a bad guy. Well, and that's what's happening in this passage. He's demanding and he's challenging us. He's telling us that, that we don't, that he isn't our fairy god brother. He doesn't give out salvation that way. In order to be his disciple, it, we can't just have it all. It doesn't work that way. We weren't designed for that type of life. And rather than fulfilling us, our own pursuits are actually killing us. And Jesus is telling us in this passage that at least um, we can't have all that we want. All right, so um, I want to look at it tonight in two ways. I want to talk about the cost of discipleship and then secondly, the grace of discipleship. So first, let's talk about the cost. Um, Jesus has been teaching uh, up at a dinner party for a couple of chapters before this. He's been teaching one of the rulers of the Pharisees. And, uh, um, th- you know, there's all of a sudden this scene break that begins chapter 14. Um, so right, he'd been telling the Pharisees uh, that God would invite all kinds of different people to come to this feast, to come to the party that is the kingdom of God, because the first people he invited weren't really wanting to show up anyway. So all of a sudden, it's talking about lots and lots of people coming in. Well, now we hit this next scene. And it says uh, here that Luke says, a great crowd has essentially gathered. So Jesus, having widened the scope of the kingdom, now begins to narrow it a little bit. He announces, uh, uh, you know, who, who isn't to say and who wouldn't love to show up around Jesus who has announced the kingdom of God, saying that all these amazing things are going to happen, seeing miracles being done. Um, And it's precisely because these crowds have grown so much that Jesus begins to challenge them. In essence, Jesus challenges them because they think that they are following nice guy Jesus or the Jesus who will give them the kingdom that they want. So he speaks up in verse 26 and confronts their and our idea of what it means to have peace and wholeness in the kingdom. So Jesus drops this hammer on him with an incredibly challenging teaching. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, he names everybody in there, right? There's no family member that escapes that. And so whenever we hear these types of challenges in the Bible, we either skip over them or we try to mitigate them as quickly as we possibly can. So we say to ourselves, well, Jesus didn't really mean, he didn't really mean that. He's being hyperbolic. And so we discount it and we kind of rob it of its challenge. And yes, Jesus is speaking hyperbolically. Um, He isn't saying that we should hate our father and our mother. As the, word, uh, as the Word become flesh, He would not disagree with the Ten Commandments prior that would teach us to honor our father and our mother or to love our neighbor as ourselves as, uh, as our family would actually be neighbors as well, right? So why does Jesus challenge us in this seemingly paradoxical way? 
Well, when Jesus says that in order to follow him, we must hate our families, he's asking us in a way that we cannot ignore to reassign our first loves, to reassess our priorities. In order to be Jesus' disciple, we should have no higher allegiance than him. We should be willing to lose even our beloved and our honored family for the sake of Christ. And in a world of family values and deep desire to see sort of the nuclear family given a little bit more reverence than it currently is, and um, right, we, we want to hold on to that, and it's right and it's good, and I'm not arguing with any of that. However, he demands that no one place anything, including their family, above him. And this is not a new kind of demand. We see it as early as Genesis. Where God promises Abraham that he's going to have descendants that outnumber the stars. And so um, even, even as he's getting near 100, Abraham's beginning to wonder, how are you going to fulfill this promise? Um, and, but finally, God grants him a son, Isaac. Sometime later, while Isaac is, is you know, not yet, uh, not, no longer really a young boy, but not old enough to have been married and producing uh, heirs of his own, God commands Abraham to give up his first love, to sacrifice his son. So not only is Abraham being tested to whether or not he loves his son more than God, but he's also being tested as to whether or not he believes God's promises, that God somehow can fulfill his promises to give descendants that number more than the stars, even when his son is gone. And stripped away. Is God still able to do all that he has said? And yet Abraham here is obedient. He doesn't understand why God is asking him to give up his only son, but he trusts God. He knows that God is good, and so he obeys. And thankfully, we're not left like in suspense uh, that, that Abraham was as, as to how the story would end. We know that God graciously intervenes and provides a ram for the sacrifice himself. Now, God has not commanded any of us to sacrifice or ruin relationships we have with our family. That's not what I'm trying to say here. But he's telling us that we're to put no, no one and no thing ahead of him. Because if we do, then we cannot be his disciple. We are being discipled by that thing or that person rather than Jesus. But Jesus goes on from there. He tells us that we're to bear our own cross and to follow after him. And he says this before he has gone to the cross. All right, so he's saying that this to his disciples, um, before they fully understand all of the implications, all they know of the cross is that it's for criminals and that it's, it's a shameful way to die. So with these warnings, he tells us that we're to count the cost. We should count the cost like someone who begins a massive building project who would take into account all that he has in order to be able to finish it, right? Because if you don't, then the chances of finishing it are pretty slim. Or we should count the cost like a king would before going to war, counting up his side and his numbers before actually going to battle against another. So why does Jesus pick these two examples? Well, both are actually related to the customary beliefs of the time about the Messiah. Right? See, they anticipated that when the Messiah comes, that the temple would be rebuilt, essentially. It already was rebuilt, but rebrought into its own glory. Or, uh, you know, they believed that, that it would be through the Messiah that the Romans would ultimately bow to their feet. 
That's what the audience wants most out of this relationship with Jesus. But Jesus here is telling them that in order to be a disciple of the Messiah, it is going to cost far more than they think it will. He's telling them that although he's going to give them everything that they need, they are not going to get most of what they want here. And there's much that they will have to give up in order to follow him. A disciple of Jesus needs to count the cost, the full cost, the cost of dying to himself or herself. The cost of leaving behind all dreams. The cost of leaving um, all that they love behind. And to give our life to Christ in that context, right? So what are the things in your life that you don't want to give up? The things of which you think and maybe even pray, Lord, I'm happy to give you this part of my life, but please don't touch that. This part's mine. Don't touch my work. Don't meddle in it. Don't touch my sexuality. Don't touch my marriage or my children. Don't let my spouse suffer. What are the things that you're clinging to? Maybe even putting them in a lockbox off to the side that you don't even enter into your own prayers about because it's even untouchable in your own thought life. What are the things that will cause you so much grief if Jesus comes in and asks you to give them up. Like the rich young ruler who left dejected after talking to Jesus because he asked what he must do to inherit eternal life and Jesus said, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And the rich young man left saddened because he was so rich and he would have had to give it up all to follow Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is incredibly challenging and it's incredibly costly. He wants no loyalty over him. And something, sometimes we think that we can manipulate this game just by thinking like, I would totally be willing to give up this or that for Jesus. I I know he's not really going to ask me, but like, I would totally be willing to give up my money for you. Um, So we never sit with the weight of the passage when we play that mental game, right? So let's sit in it for a second. Is Jesus asking you to give up on your busyness? Is he asking you to give up on your worry or your control over your schooling and activities of your children? Is he asking for you to give up your image of yourself, whether it's your reputation or your appearance? Is he asking you to give up your love of your your first love of the nation or political commentary? or money, or possessions. Or maybe he's asking for us to give over our desire to be the Savior, to be loved and valued and appreciated and needed. And you all know that most of these things in and of themselves are not wrong, but they can easily become our first loves and in so become wrong. They follow, they lead us down a path to death and destruction. So are we willing to give all of our life to Christ. Does that scare you? I know it scares me. This week I was meeting uh, with a mentor who asked me point blank, have you given your life to Christ? And like, you know what? Yes and no, right? How many parts of our life do we not want to give over? It's scary. And it's a path that he's continually calling us to bear our cross and die to ourselves and follow him. But this, 
even though it feels deathly, and even though this isn't the type of message that would typically like be all about like church growth, you know, you don't really preach this message often when you're like trying to get a whole bunch of people in the room. Um, it demands a lot, but this is actually God's grace to us. And that's our next point, which is the grace of discipleship. I think one of the most interesting things about this passage is that Jesus isn't merely speaking metaphorically when he tells his disciples to bear their cross and follow him. Almost all of the 12 disciples end up dying for following Jesus or for preaching about him. There's all sorts of historical materials that talk about how Peter was actually also crucified. Uh, And if tradition is to be believed, Peter refused to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus, in the same way as his Savior, so he demanded that he be crucified upside down. But physical deaths aside, we see Jesus' command to give things up and to follow him as a form of death, and yes, it is that. But y'all, we live, as I said, in this upside down world. So in so many ways, Peter had it right, right? That was actually life. We believe somehow that selfishness or pride or uh, you know, thinking through all of the same outcomes, which might be categorized as worrying or hoarding or vainglory, all of those things are a way to get ahead in the world. We believe that's how we're supposed to live. But it's in putting those things de- to death that we actually begin to find life. It's in putting... Um, it's in dying to ourselves and following Jesus that we find out that we might live. Jesus offers us an invitation here to be his disciple. He bids that we follow him, that we take up our cross and follow him. And that means we follow him to the very end. We follow him to the cross. We follow him to the resurrection, the ascension, and the new heavens and the new earth. He bids that we die to ourselves, that we give up the things in this world to which we have sought meaning and salvation, but he promises that ultimately we will be given this amazing inheritance, that we will inherit the earth. Y'all, Jesus asks us to give up our pursuit of having it all so that he might give us everything, the whole earth. And giving up our life, we gain it. In living in a cross-formed way where we serve, where we give up our way of doing things, and where we love as we have been loved, then we find life. See, we're so used to living in a world of selfish sin that all aspects of cross-shaped life feel like death. Martin Luther spoke frequently about sort of, he called it the worldly theology of glory, and he would pit it against a theology of the cross. He would say that as sinners, we live with a theology of glory, that we're very good theologians of glory. He said that a theologian of glory does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering. He prefers glory to the cross. He prefers strength to weakness, wisdom to folly. Jesus here is calling us to become theologians, not of glory, but theologians of the cross. Because it's in the cross that we have life. Because we follow a God who is not dead, but who is very much alive. Who is alive and has brought us to life through his death. Who loved us and his bride. He loved us as his bride and he gave himself up for us. So he bids 
that we do so, that we, that we do so too, that we bear our cross and follow Him. But because as we die, we find life in Him. Um, I think actually even this week, uh, uh, this week was the release of the new Lord of the Rings um, show, The Rings of Power, and I believe a few of us got together and watched it. Um, I, I haven't seen it yet, uh, so I don't know if it's good or not. I've heard it's decent. Um, but it reminded me of how incredible Tolkien's story is. I, the ring throughout Tolkien's series represents power and wealth, or, or you know, it seems to sort of represent temptation as well. Um, and it's powerful, and it seems to warp whoever has it, warp them more into, into a desire to have it even more. It becomes their first love. And so in the story of um, the Lord of the Rings, Frodo and his friend Sam set out on the task to destroy the ring, to take the ring to the fires of Mount Mordor where it was forged so that it would ultimately be destroyed. Um, and along the way, they encounter a character named Gollum. He's a former man um, who's morphed into this beast over time because of his desire for the ring. Gollum used to have the ring, and he loves the ring, and he wants the ring back. And so as the audience, or unfortunately I haven't read the book, so for me it's the audience. Um, don't judge me too much. But as the audience, we're wondering whether or not Gollum is, is actually capable of changing or whether he's here along for the journey only to be tempted yet again and to steal it back. So he joins Sam and Frodo in this tension about his precious. Is he ultimately going to trick them? And so at the very end of the story, we see Frodo and Sam have made it to Mount Mordor. But this ring has begun to change Frodo a little bit as well. He struggles in the end to give it up. He puts it on. Um, and it's at that very moment that Gollum just can't stand it anymore, right? The Gollum's true colors are ultimately revealed. He fights Frodo, and he bites Frodo's finger with the ring on it, and seemingly falls, not seemingly, actually falls into the fires of Mordor, uh, along with the finger and along with the ring. And as he's falling to his death, as he's been discipled by this ring the entire way, as he's followed the ring on this path with, uh, with Frodo and Sam, and he's following it to it, ultimately his fiery de de demise, he smiles as he now is oogling and ogling or whatever his precious onto his very death. You know, we can be discipled in all the same ways. Right, well, we are following those very things unto our own death. So when we want to have it all or we want to have whatever that is that is our precious, it ultimately leads to death. But Jesus in his love and in his grace for us tells us to bear our cross so that it will have no more dominion over you and me. But that so that our only master, so that our only savior would be Jesus Christ and him alone and that we would have life in him. And we cast all of our other loves aside other than our love for Jesus Christ, the one who died for us and loves us. Would you pray with me unto that end? Our God and Father, I do thank you. I thank you for the love of Christ. Lord, that in his truth, even as um, what it can feel like is bad guy Jesus, um, I thank you that you are so good to us that you call us out of our paths of destruction into a path 
of life with you. And so I pray for some of us here this evening who might be struggling with what that looks like. Pray that you would give us courage, courage to give things over to you, to give things up, to make Jesus our first love. And ultimately, Father, if we're not ready, I pray that you would continue to send your spirit to us, that we would be able to at some point um, to give those things up and to follow Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.